friends in Christ, my topic is the sacred liturgy under attack, and I'd like to have a few prefaces before I get to the main point. When one says that something is under attack, uh, it's perfectly possible that the attack comes from outside. So you could say the family is under attack, the government is under attack, and so on. But I think you will agree that in the case of the sacred liturgy, it's uniquely the fact that there is no attack possible from outside. The armies of atheists could suppress the church, shoot the priests, and so on, but they have absolutely no effect on the church's prayer. So if, in fact, there is an attack on the sacred liturgy within the Roman Catholic Church, of course, we have to look within ourselves for the culprits, because this is a kind of civil war and I need not tell the group here of especially great agony that I know about 30 different ways to break up any organization. I had the fortune or misfortune to start a small school in the United States, and I can tell you all kinds of ways to destroy the school, but the best way is to start talking about the liturgy, and you can line up 15 factions which would make Belfast seem peaceful. And I think you appreciate that, not perhaps so much in this country as in America, because this country has its, its historical sanity plus its indult. But I keep reminding my audiences uh, in, in the United Kingdom, you should never be smug. You should never say, this is Fortress England, we're protected by the Channel and everything else, that you're only six hours away from New York. And we've got enough kooks in New York who are experts at workshops and, and call to actions and ever, and therefore Fortress England can sink. So you should always be grateful to God for whatever sanity you have in the liturgy, and you should um, beware lest some of it be dribbled out or even destroyed outright. So that's my first remark that Obviously, this is an internal problem of great moment in the church. There's tremendous insensitivity on the part of many in authority with respect to this program. And I think there's a lot of errors on all sides, especially by certain extremist groups who only hurt the cause for a sober liturgy when they make somewhat intemperate remarks about invalidity of rites and the like. My second preliminary remark is this, that it is really impertinent of me to come to this group and to speak on the sacred liturgy uh, for a very good reason, which I'll divulge later on, that I am in no sense an expert on the liturgy, that there are all kinds of problems in modern Catholicism and modern philosophy for that moment, for that uh, matter, and I have suffered with the liturgy. I have kept up with liturgical developments and disasters, but I'm by no means the articulate uh, analyzer, which I should be or might be. Even so, I give you this one apology for my presence here. Humanly speaking, the greatest gift in my life was to have met Dietrich von Hildebrand in 1949. And... I took my doctorate under him, and I became his fast friend. He was the best man at my wedding, and I used to see him about every two weeks until he died. 
1977. You know he wrote this beautiful book, Liturgy and Personality, which is unfortunately out of print, and he used to tell us that he could never write that book in the present state of the church, which is self-evident. But that marvelous book took the immemorial mass and showed relationships that showed how whosoever was caught by the inner meaning of the immemorial mass automatically, without intending it, was able to develop great features or attitudes which belong to the full personality, regardless of his education. The immemorial mass, the, the primary purpose, of course, was worship. And one always seeks to worship God in a fitting way, but as a superabundant gift, it developed in every person these attitudes of response to value, of reverence, of organic growth. It was the great masterpiece of all time. Michael Davies says that several times in all his books, perhaps the greatest product of Christianity in 2,000 years was this magnificent worship of the immemorial mass. And I remember when it was replaced by the new ordo, someone who today would prefer to be called a moderate, and I won't get any more specific, uh, was outraged and used a magnificent word. They, she said, they have destroyed a cathedral. She didn't say that the, the little shanty or the pillbox which replaced it was invalid, but they've destroyed a cathedral, the cathedral of the old missal itself, so that if I have anything, it's not so much that I have anything new to say, I hope what I have to say is true and valid, but if I have any occasion or justification for speaking here, it's because for so many years I have sat at the foot of Van Hildebrand and he used to speak about so many things, but never so much as about the Holy Mass and the immemorial Mass and the great gift of God, which it was to countless generations. I remember my father was an immigrant from Italy. He came to America at age 14. He never missed High Mass on Sunday. He had no education. He spoke English and Italian ungrammatically, no doubt in Italian, certainly in English, but it mattered not to him. He knew that at that high mass on Sunday, something momentous was taking place. And until he died, or shortly before he died, he lovingly participated in that immemorial mass. I want to discuss now this, this problem of the liturgy under attack. And I think we have to use the words of Michael Davies that we are faced with a liturgical revolution. No matter how much the moderates insist that this is not so, that's what it means when you have a radical overturning of attitude and principles and details and effects. That's what a revolution is. It's not simply a minor uh, uh, surgery or, or using the image of the cathedral. I think we all should agree that the immemorial mass was like a magnificent cathedral and sometimes extra chapels were built and no one even knows why. And if you went through a passageway, you would see a, a, a cave with, with certain additions and it could be there was somewhat redundancy. 
So that if we were serious, if we had been serious about reforming in, in a positive way that cathedral, it might have meant taking an arch down here and closing up that entrance and perhaps uh, putting some mosaic here. The equivalent, in other words, of dropping one confidium. There sometimes were too many confidiers, the one just before communion. And perhaps adding this or adding that, that, that it's always possible to have a splendid work and organically, in the spirit of prayer, to add or subtract somewhat from it. But a revolution means you blow it up with whatever speeches is immaterial. That a revo- and a revolution is characterized by this hatred of the past, that these Jacobins come in and and are infuriated by anything reminding them of monarchy, as it were, so that they do their vandalism, and as if that isn't bad enough, but then we're made to endure speeches about how lucky we are to be given this pillbox and and to walk among the rubble, (laughs) how how fortunate we are that, that the genius of so many learned people gave us this thing. So that, that is the, the theme of what I want to discuss tonight. And of course, the moderates make a distinction which is totally accurate, and we ought to pause on this. They distinguish what really happened after Vatican II, which they even admit is deplorable, and even what really happens, because it's by no means ended. Uh, every time you wake up, there's a new workshop. And every time there's a new workshop, there's a new horror prepared. So we have to distinguish between the de facto event, uh, what happens, and everyone could admit it's, it's filled with abuses, but then they say we should distinguish that from what ought to have happened, what was the mind of the church and the fathers at Vatican II when they wrote the Constitution on the sacred liturgy, and they also include, so they include under one rubric, not the de facto, but the ought, And under ought, they mean the documents of Vatican II, plus all those disciplinary measures uh, promulgated by lawful authority. In other words, what Rome really wanted. Now, almost everyone admits that what we have now is not what Rome really wanted. And I think to a certain extent that's correct. So let's quickly look at this. Uh, if someone says, well, what about, uh, uh, would my position be that what Rome wanted, what the Vatican II mandated, was itself wonderful and good and so on, I would say that's not so easy to answer. I know von Hildebrand at first used to say that uh, the actual documents of Vatican II were superb. But I think it's more accurate to say now that in one sense, and upon a certain reading, they are certainly not objectionable, and they certainly could even be interpreted in a favorable sense. But Lefebvre's phrase is relevant here. Nevertheless, those ambiguous clauses were time bombs. And you can't blame the time bombs on the bishops. I mean, the local dioceses and the local litniks who, who have managed to, to make a scandal, a sacrilege out of everything, that this came from authority. This came from the official documents. Now, did the official documents promulgate formal error or heresy? No, we don't have to go that far. It suffices that there was an imprecision, and we can suspect that it was deliberately there, 
by some mafia element in the council. But it suffices that if this imprecision was there, which really did give a kind of authority to many of the changes, which therefore are really authorized. They are not abuses, they are authorized. And I think we should always note this, that uh, you could say it's a time bomb, and then you have to say that events caused uh, these time bombs to detonate, or perhaps it might even be better to say that they were seeds, like weeds, foul weeds. And these seeds were scattered uh, among a nice innocent garden, which was not stupendous, but uh, acceptable, and that subsequent events have, have watered and nurtured the seeds so that today we are in this evil growth. And, and we thrash about wildly and we sin against charity and everything else, and above all, we're distracted from worship. We no longer go into a church to worship. We go into a church with a notebook. And we're looking around and, and nervously wondering what new thing is going to greet us here or there, even if in fact it's straight. I've, had, I've made about seven masses in my eight days here, and any one of those seven masses would be considered perfectly ideal where I come from. I mean, that's a, we wouldn't even fight, I think. We'd say, well, let's leave well enough alone. You have sobriety. You have the literal mass as it's in the new missal. Uh, you don't have these endless innovations. You don't have mini-skirted girls distracting you and so on. So I would, I would almost say I could uh, uh, accept that. But where I come from, we do things much better and we have so much more progress and more money for workshops that even if six out of seven masses are acceptable, it's like Russian roulette. You don't know if this chamber has the bullet. And therefore, there's no worship. Everyone's anxious. And this ought to be the most sublime moment of the day. And instead, it's one more contribution to agony, one more temptation to uncharity. And therefore, it's already scandalous that such a thing should exist. Now, about the abuses... I think there's absolutely no need to dwell on them in detail, but we can certainly skim over them just to uh, appreciate what has happened, that we've had 15 years of liturgical anarchy and revolution and ultimately horror. I've heard from several sources that this full horror has not reached England too much. But as I say, we're, we're six hours away, we in America, and I know enough of many dioceses in America to say it's in a sense the rule that one has abuses. That New York Archdiocese is among the sanest. There's nothing to shout about, but they just go through the bland motions with no enthusiasm really. But in the minute you leave the New York Archdiocese, you have every kind of stupidity. And you, of course, have justification from on high. Not from Rome, necessarily, but certainly from the local, ordinary. And all this effusive praise about how wonderfully contemporary liturgy is, and for the first time in our lives, we're really awake and light. Now, we also know from statistics, for what they're worth, that millions and millions no longer worship. When anyone tells me about the splendid health of the church, I wonder if he's talking about planet Earth. I was, at, I was at a deanery meeting yesterday, and there was a priest there who was uh, jubilant because I seemed to be a bit doubtful about 
the spiritual and liturgical health of the church. And he said, the church has never been so healthy and so respected. And his proof was this, that anytime there's a controversy now, the BBC calls up his office to find out what the Catholic Church's <coughs> position is on hunger strikes or whatever. But, but they, they, they would call up Jehovah Witnesses. They just want action. But this poor man thinks this is a sign that we're finally respected. On the contrary... I think our internal squabbles, our shallow theology, our scandalous uh, disobediences have made it that we have lost most of our savor and we are rightly trampled upon by men. We're the laughingstock of the world. That instead of being the moral authority which would make the state tremble, which we were so short a time ago, at least in America, you didn't put on a little dirty film lest the Cardinal Archbishop of New York speak. But the salt has lost its savor, and quite rightly we're dismissed. So in no sense am I, uh, I am in no sense one of these bubbling optimists who, who congratulates oneself on, on the health of the church. And, there, and one of the proofs is this, it's not the only proof. Maybe we have, instead of quantity, quality. But I'm not persuaded of that. We certainly don't have quantity. Year by year, fewer and fewer people worship. And even the moderates admit that uh, projecting into the future, within 10 years, they'll be lucky if 5% of France, for example, attends Mass on Sundays. They're getting close to that now. But of course, it's not because of the Council. See, that would be the fallacy of post hoc ergo propter hoc. I, I think they're right. I think it's because of cosmic rays. I think that's what is the real reason that, that we have to investigate this. But what else is it because? Now, I don't say it need have been done. I don't say it necessarily was fated to follow from the fact of a council. But given, given what happened historically, it's intelligible that all these things happen. And what we can say that even at best, in the normal parish, the daily mass, the Sunday mass, the Saturday vigil, we have a, a litany of bland, flat services. That, that's about the average. There's a dispirited clergy, they're thumbing through the book, people making the responses mechanical, those very responsibles which were supposed to be so meaningful, those very responses, they're now mechanical, and one puts the hand out for the sign of peace and so on. That's, that's at best, normally. Once a while, once in a while, on the Feast of St. Philip Neri, in the oratory, you get a splendid thing, and that's alleged as proof that nothing really has changed. But it's quite the opposite. It's as if once a year, we go back into the boarded-up cathedral and light it up and say, there it is. But then for the rest of the time, we're with the pillbox. That the liturgy, as everyone knows it, with the exception of you fortunate few who live near the oratory, the liturgy is this bland, flat, uh, horizontal type of worship. But of course, more often, at least in America, and I hear in France and other countries, it's much more than that. It's, it's not a, at least if it were bland, it would not be so sacrilegious. It would not be sacrilegious at all. It would simply be flat. But more often, there's always a combination of silliness. It seems as if the potentiality for silliness is infinite. 
in, in people of miserable culture, miserable education, but they're flattered now that they too have to contribute to liturgy. They're busy at night while we are playing cards. They're busy in their self-sacrificing way uh, writing liturgies for children, for Thanksgiving, for everything else. And they're a bit unhappy that we boors don't appreciate their, their uh, immemorial contributions to that. And it's silliness. I think that's still more, it's still more offensive than anything else. Uh, giggling idiots tampering with this majestic act, the sacred act of Christ, and expecting to be applauded. Also, of course, we have blasphemy and sacrilege, and these are documented. When I first started Catholics United for the Faith, I was not a founding officer, but I was a founding guerrilla, as it were, a founding spirit. Uh, our first thing was to collect all the horror stories. We used to start every meeting with a horror story, and that was interesting. And if you remember Triumph magazine, the beautiful magazine, should never have folded, their first page was called Non Imprimatur, and they admitted it should have been Nay Imprimatur, but they would have one page of horror stories, and that would get us warmed up for the magazine. And you, that, these can be duplicated, and there's no need this. Also, I think we ought to note, though, that in the modern post-conciliar church, there's a new rudeness concerning the liturgy that, in, in other senses, the clergy are somewhat more polite and accessible, but there's this ruthless rudeness toward people. And I've been in the pre-conciliar church. I'm 53 years old, so I've seen both sides equally. And I know there were a lot of these authoritarian monsignors who would uh, dominate the flock, and they were not Christian or courteous even, but they're infinitely surpassed by this rudeness today, this insensitivity on the part of priests and, and, and ordinaries with respect to this intimate act of worship, with respect to souls. They brush past with their arrogance. So that is what we have to do. And the single greatest note, though, everybody admits, is the loss of the sense of the sacred, the loss of reverence toward the things of God. You know, I know Michael Davies quotes Louis Bouillet, the French oratorian father, in a very positive way, uh, very often, and rightly so. He has a book, The Decomposition of Catholicism, which is still more gloomy than anything I've ever said. But Bouillet himself is very sensitive because he defended the whole reform of the liturgy. I was in a meeting with him many years ago in, in Arkansas, and I played the devil's advocate. He had flown in for some reason, and we had about six Americans there. So my point was, okay, you tell us why we needed a reform of the liturgy. You tell me why it's so good, and so on. And he, in, even then, this was about maybe 1969 or so, I don't remember the year, it was quite a long time ago, he, he thought it was self-evident that we had to have a reform of the liturgy, not merely to get rid of a confidier, as it were, to brick up one of the chapels, but he said the old liturgy was impoverished. Louis Bouillet. So in a sense, he was a lover, and he was on liturgical commissions. He's no idiot. He's a very intelligent man. So in a sense, he was offended when we came along and attacked, when at least I came along and told him I saw no reason for the whole thing, 
the whole alleged reform that the Pope or someone could have changed a few things in the old missal and that's all we really needed and could have added a few feasts, a few new prefaces. That's, that really would have been my idea of liturgical reform. But Bouillet was insisting, no, 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 uh, there's so much to, uh, we had to have and this is wonderful, but if you read his books, he has damning statements such as, today there is no liturgy worthy of the name. And this is from a man enthusiastic, at least about the documents, perhaps an architect of those documents, of Vatican II. So, and I've never met a person happy with the new order, as it stands. Obviously, traditionalists and moderates can't stand it. But the liberals don't like it because they always have to transcend it. They're not satisfied with it either. And the listless clergyman who reads and does his duty and then goes playing golf, he's just doing his job. It's what Hildebrand calls this attitude of employeeism. That you, you got a job. You put, you put in your mask, then you go out. But, but therefore, no one really thinks we've achieved anything in liturgy positive. Oh, a few people will, will write uh, their rhapsodies, but that's for internal consumption or for press releases. But I don't think anybody really believes it. The best they can do is point to a new ordo and say it's almost like the old mass if you have a beautiful choir, Gregorian chant, and then the point is, well, why did you bother changing? You had the old mass. What's all this turmoil for if that's the one thing said in its favor? However, if you think, uh, and when you think of music, again, finally, that this tremendous gift of sacred music, and above all, the Gregorian chant, but also the great sublime Baroque, and polyphonic sacred music, almost totally lost and replaced by Lucien Dace or someone else who, who's very modestly talented. But that, nevertheless, is what happened. Now, if you read Vatican II's Constitution on the Liturgy, it in no way seems wild. By the way, I can only bear to read this once. I am not a scholar of Vatican II. I simply can't stand an awful lot of the read. They're too verbose. They sound like German existentialist philosophers uh, when they're, they're always talking, talking, talking. But if you read it once or if you hear synopses of it read to you once, that it in no way seems wild. It in no way seemed wild. And that's why most people voted for it. It was the first constitution voted. And most people said, oh, yes, yes, we want to change a few things. They've probably got a few experts in saying we have to streamline it here or there. And as you know, that there is this call for revision so as to display more clearly the essence of Holy Mass. Now, one could see that this could have been needed. It's almost like this, that, again, you go to a cathedral, 13th century French Gothic cathedral, and the sculptors and the architects have become so uh, prolific that you wonder where the nave is or, or whatever, that things are so rich, you don't know who's the bishop or who's the celebrant. So you could see that perhaps they should have had an offertory procession, perhaps. That why should the altar boy be commissioned to go into the sanctuary and bring out the bread and wine? That if it signifies the people of God offering something to be sanctified, uh, fine. So one could see that I bet if, if I had been a bishop at Vatican II, one does have nightmares, uh, I would have voted for that because I'm very uncritical. I'm the sleepiest person in the world until the bomb goes off, and then I hate having been tricked into it. And I think most people said that. Certainly Archbishop Dwyer of America 
wrote a good article. He said, no, no, that's not at all what we thought we were voting for. Not at all, not at all. He said that too late. Too little and too late. Now, so much then for that. And uh, uh, let me just note a few more of the abuses and then we'll get to the other point. That uh, even this implementation though, so having finished with those abuses in general, we note that even though the Constitution did not seem wild, nevertheless, when they implemented, when Bonini's commission implemented uh, those alleged directives of the council, and by the way, in an endless stream of documents again, you see, we laymen have to earn a living. Anything we do in philosophy or catechetics is by moonlighting. We need two jobs. And these professionals subsidize and living on the good life uh, in Rome or whatever, they poured out this endless stuff. You never knew where to find it. You never knew what superseded what. And I remember at CUF, Catholics United for the Faith, we almost were thinking of establishing a kind of documentary office because I never knew what was the latest thing coming from it. And that, I think, is part of the plot. I mean, instead of in plain English or plain Italian saying this and that's it, there were these endless directives with exceptions and this and this and this and this. And what happened was there was already here the seed of a revolution in these authorized things. How? Well, in what the thing commanded, in what it permitted, in the fact that there was always change, change, change. 